0: The Jets look to make it 6 wins in their last 8 games to close out the season in Buffalo on Sunday. We preview the game against the playoff-bound Bills, break down Sam Darnold's progression and tell a few beat writer classic memories with the veteran post football columnist Steve Serby. We also give out the best Jets of the last decade at each position. All that and more next on Gang's All Here with the New York Post.
1: You play to win the game.
0: Welcome to Gangs All Here, a New York Jets podcast with the New York Post. I'm your host and Jets beat writer Brian Costello. You can follow me on Twitter at Brian Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. We are joined today by Steve Serby. Let's preview the season finale. All right. Well, the Jets wrap up this sometimes what has felt like a long, long season on Sunday in Buffalo, looking to finish seven and nine. Uh, you know no one's going to throw them a parade for seven and nine, but it is an accomplishment considering they were one and seven. And I think when they were one and seven, you were questioning whether they were going to win another game, were they going to go one and 15 and they've been able to win five games here in the second half of the season. If they win Sunday, they went six and two in the second half of the season, uh, you know, which would be a, you know, it's a pretty good accomplishment for turning the year around and giving them a little bit of momentum heading into the off season, I don't think there's much carryover into next season, but, you know, it'll help in the offseason, give them a little bit of confidence. Uh, just talking to the players uh, earlier this week, you know, Jamal Adams said this is a playoff game. You know, they're treating this like a playoff game. So they are going to, you know, I think they're going to be focused for this game. I think they're going to be up for this game. I don't get the sense that they've, they're like ready to go home. You know, sometimes in week 17, you know, guys have tea times on Tuesday already set up and they're thinking about, uh, flying home on Monday and being done with the year. I don't think this team is is really there. It's a younger team. I think that's helped in a lot of regards uh, with the way the season has gone. I think they have enjoyed playing together. I think they're feeling good about what they've done over the last two months. So, um, you know, I think they're going to come out and play hard on Sunday. It's going to be weird to because the Bills have nothing to play for. They're locked into the number five seed in the playoffs. So, you know, how long do they play their starters? Uh, Bills coach Sean McDermott – said he will play his starters including quarterback josh allen but he's not going to play them for the whole game so do we see matt barkley in the first quarter after two series or do we see matt barkley in the third quarter like when when do they make that change it's kind of a hard game to evaluate right now because you don't know um how long those starters are going to play for Uh, but you know i think the jets can't really worry about that they have to be focused on on winning this game and i think for adam gase it's been a tough first season, you know, Um, a lot of, a lot of injuries. Uh, Obviously the Jets fans are not big fans of Adam Gates. I'm not sure how that much that concerns him, but you know, it can't feel good. I think if he wins this game, at least, um, you know, he has something to hang his hat on going six and two in the second half of the season. I think the, you know, establishing his program going into year two will help him with players believing if they, you know, they see results. They'll believe in him a little bit more. I think that helps. And, um, you know, I, so overall, you know, even though there's not a playoff berth on the line, I think this is an important game for the Jets on Sunday. All right. I want to welcome in now Steve Serby, my colleague from the New York Post, longtime New York Post football columnist. Sir, about you know, looking at this game on Sunday, it obviously doesn't have any meaning for the Bills. But what what do you think this game means for the Jets?
1: Well, the Jets want to obviously end this season on a high note after starting one and seven. Seven and nine is seven and nine. I mean, let's face it, there's no parades for seven and nine. But uh, at least at least they'll believe that that they're headed in the right direction. Whether they are or, or not, of course, will depend on what Joe Douglas can do in, in the draft with all those draft picks and with all that money in, in free agency. So, uh, again, the Josh Allen's going to play, but he's only going to play a little bit and the jets should win this game. I mean, they're playing their starters. They're playing a win. It means more to them than it does to the bills. The bills just want to get out of this game alive and, uh, and healthy for the playoffs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's been some debate of what, you know, the, we've talked about it on the podcast a few times. Okay. Does does winning at the end of the year mean anything for the following year? To me, I I don't think it really carries over. I think it helps in the off season and it beats the alternative. That's what I would say. You know, it beats a a four game losing streak to end the season and going into the off season, not sure about yourselves. You know, if they win this, Seven and nine, like you said, no parades for that, but it should give the Jets a little bit of confidence, especially after starting the year one and seven. Uh, and I think it helps Adam Gase establish his program and, and make players believe in him a little more. So, you know, I do think. The Jets have some something on the line,
1: and and it's a revenge game too against Matt Barkley. Remember what Barkley did to them last year? Yes, yeah, the revenge game for Matt Barkley. Barkley killed them, forty-one uh, to ten. Uh, yeah. That was to me. That was the final nail in Todd Bowles' coffin. the first play threw it Tremaine Johnson, and it
0: was like, oh boy. You know, they they were attacking. They were really aggressive that day. A fake punt. They had a tackle eligible play.
1: Sam didn't play
0: that game. He missed no. that game with a foot. McCown started. Speaking of Sam, uh, you know. What have you thought of his second half of the season, and
1: what do you want to see from him Sunday? Sam is Sam is on the uh, on the climb. He's uh, he didn't take that second year leap. We all were were some of us were expecting him to take. Certainly, he was expecting himself to take, but uh, mono kind of interfered with that. So, but look, he he has he has the looks a uh, look of a guy who's going to be a franchise quarterback. Now, again, he every young quarterback endures growing pains. We've seen it from Daniel Jones with the Giants, and we'll continue to see it from Sam. But once they build the offensive line in front of him, once Joe Douglas gets that done and re-signs Robbie Anderson, which I think he should do, and adds another weapon, and he, he will have Chris Herndon and Ryan Griffin available next year, hopefully. Hopefully, if Herndon can stay on the field, uh, then I expect Sam Darnold to grow and become possibly a top. A, a top he should be a top ten quarterback or a top twelve quarterback next season. So, you've been around the Jets. You've been around the NFL for a long
0: time. Was there ever a quarterback that you, you thought was going to be a lot better than he ended up being? That you thought, like you're thinking about Sam Darnold now, he's going to develop it's going to happen and then it didn't happen for them or or pretty much, have you been able to tell uh, early on with guys?
1: No, I was totally wrong on Browning Nagel, the the Browning rifle. Um, (laughs) He had a tremendous, tremendous arm, uh, an elite arm, but uh, Bruce Casa just couldn't get much out of him. And uh, he was one and done as a quarterback in New York. And I, I totally misread that. He had a great opening game in Atlanta. And everybody was gung ho about uh, the next Joe Namath, and uh, that fizzled in a hurry. <laughs>
0: yeah, that that was quick though. Like you, you realize that pretty quick. Like you know, I, I'm like Sam's in year two. Like we've seen him play 25 <clears throat> games. Have you been able to pretty much tell what a quarterback is through 25 games?
1: Yeah, you well, we can tell about Deshaun Watson, and we could probably, I think, we can tell about Lamar Jackson, and we could tell about Patrick Mahomes. But guys like that are few and far between. Um, You know, we've we've seen quarterbacks over the years it, it, with every team who looked like they were the next big thing, and then for whatever reason, changing coaches, changing systems, did not just fell off the face of the earth. Yeah. So you just never know for sure. Um, Like I said, the, those guys I mentioned are the exceptions. But Darnold, you look at Darnold, and he's Look, he's got the—he's wired correctly. That's what Josh McCown always said last season. The kid is wired correctly. He wants to be great, and he's got all the physical tools. So, if he has the right support around him, he can be a top twelve quarterback by next season. All
0: right. Well, you know, enough about this. This six and nineteen. Let's—I want to look back at, uh, you know, a, a memory you have from from your years covering football. Uh, I know you
1: have a, a great Bill Parcells story, Serb, So uh, we, we want to hear that. Well, I've got a lot of great Bill Parcells stories. He, boy, I miss him. He was tremendous. He was great to cover. Um, you never knew what you were going to get with with Parcells. Some days he was he would regale you with stories, football stories, life stories. Other days he was moody as hell. But anyway, when he was uh, lured away from Robert Kraft or in the process of being lured away from Robert Kraft and the Patriots when he nav- navigated his escape from New England. Uh, Mark Cannizzaro, my colleague, and I uh, wanted to talk to him before uh, anybody else did. And we uh, took a trip to Seagate, New Jersey, which is where his home was, and waited in Cannizzaro's, I forget what he was driving. He's got a Jeep now, but he's he had a... He had a much better car back then, but he's very loyal to this orange Jeep he has. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, we, so we sat in the car outside Parcells' home for, I don't know, I don't remember how long. It w- We were going to wait overnight if we had to. And then finally, we see him, and, and we didn't know how Parcells <laughs> was going to react. He knew us. He knew me, certainly, a lot longer, and... I'm in the front seat. Canazero's behind the, uh, the wheel, and Parcel starts walking over it. and we didn't know what to what was going to happen. And unbelievably, he just sat down in the back seat and shot the breeze with us. And we both had stories to write. I wrote my column. Canazero wrote whatever he wrote. And um, that was the official start of the Bill Parcells era with the Jets or soon to be once uh, all the legal ramifications were cleared up. But Parcells was one of a kind. He really was. I'll never forget the time he screamed at me after the Jaguars, after they beat the Jaguars in that playoff game uh, at home. Uh, I had gone, I had been in Jacksonville the week before interviewing Jaguar players, telling them that a, a gray haired columnist uh, didn't think from New York, didn't think they had any chance in hell of beating the Jets. And and I was right. And I was right. And unbeknownst to me, Parcells was livid about it. And after the game, after they blew out the Jaguars at home, he's, he's talking to Mike Lupica and Dave Anderson and he sees me and he starts screaming at me. And I, I looked behind me. I wanted to see who he was talking to. It was me. He, he was very upset. He thought I incited the Jaguars, but meanwhile, they kicked the crap out of the Jaguars. So that was Parcells. Very complex, but very entertaining all the time. You should have got a game ball. I, mean, I no, should have. I, I don't know. I put, I put the whammy on the Jaguars. I guess I deflated them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I wish. I've, I've taught the Parcells, you know, in recent years, but I wish I had a chance to cover them because everyone ta- tells great stories. You have a story for me, don't you? Yeah, well, the, the new Mets manager, Mr. Beltran, um, you know, one of my uh, episodes of waiting outside someone's house uh, went in 2000. What was it? 2004 end of 2004, beginning of 2005, right around this time I was in uh, the Dominican Republic to do a story on Jose Reyes, who was playing winter ball at that time. And uh, we got I got a call from our former boss, Greg Gallo, who said the Mets were uh, interested in Carlos Beltran and he wanted me to go to Puerto Rico, you know, because I was already in the Dominican Republic. And I had to find Beltron. So I flew to Puerto Rico, and you know I speak a little bit of Spanish from you know high school, but but I'm not fluent by any means. So I found a kid that was working in the hotel, and I gave him, I think I gave him sixty bucks. and we were in San Juan. And I said, you know we need to drive to Mont. It was uh, Carlos's hometown. So we went there. we went to his parents' house, and I had this guy translating for me. And we we're looking for Carlos. We found out what kind of car he had. Uh, we drove around looking for him, could not find him. I ended up spending, I don't know, three or four days there looking for Carlos and I could not find him. And then finally uh, it was a Sunday afternoon and I found out he lived in a gated community and I was, si- I was sitting in my rental car outside the gate and Carlos had a, a Humvee, a, a big Brown Humvee, which not many people in Monati had. So when I saw that car I knew it was him and so I started running after the car. Back then,
1: you were in shape. I was...
0: <laughs> no, I wasn't in shape then either. No. So, uh, a guard, you know, the guard came out of a security station, and I plowed through him. Um, you know, and then and car, and then I ran. And Carlos stopped the car and told the security guard it was all right somehow. And then I, so it was he and his wife Jessica, and I was you know out of breathlessly telling him that I was a reporter from the New York Post. I had to find out if he was signing with the Mets. So he looked. He looked at his wife, and he was like, "I, I don't know if I should say anything." And I said, "Carlos, I'm going to be in front of your gate until you tell me." I said, "I can't leave until you tell me something." So he looks at his wife again, and she nods, and he said, "I just signed with the Mets." So, <laughs> so we had it. So like, so it was great. So you know, I was like all right. I got. I, I interviewed him a little bit. Um, he told me the you know contract details and everything, and you know he invited me. And our photographer, uh, who was down there, to his parents' house that night for a, uh, a party to celebrate. Now, I couldn't go to the party because I had to go back to San Juan to write my story. But the photographer went to the party, and we got a nice photo of Carlos in his living room uh, that we put on the back page. But if you remember, Joel Sherman in our paper had a story that uh, Carlos actually wanted to be a Yankee and was willing to go to the Yankees for less money, but the Yankees didn't do it, so he went to the Mets. So the picture there was a picture of Carlos in his living room, which he invited us to come into, and the headline was Yankee Reject. <laughs> oh
1: God. Did you did you ever see you must have seen Beltran after that, right? Yeah, yeah. I saw
0: him and his family at the press conference to introduce him. You know, and he was Carlos was always very nice to me. And like we would laugh every once in a while, I'd say, You remember me running after your car? And he would he'd laugh. He's oh yeah, oh yeah, you, yeah, I remember. You know, but he he got a little taste of what playing in New York was going to be like.
1: I'm He's a class cool. act. I've had some dealings with him too. I've done some Q and A's with him. Uh, he was very very shy and and reserved uh, when he first joined the Mets. Maybe yeah. maybe it was the uh, the shock <laughs> of dealing with you.
0: <laughs> maybe maybe, but well, I think he'll do well dealing with the media. Um, you know, as the manager, I think he'll he'll handle that okay. Uh, you know, I'm curious to see how he does as a manager. But before we let you go, sir, uh, I got to get your pick for Sunday's game. This is not an easy game to pick. Oh
1: yeah, no, it is easy game.
0: Easy game. All right, go.
1: Jets by ten. Ten. Wow. Yep. How double yep. Win? Well, come on. Matt Barkley's going to be playing most of the game. They're going to get Josh Allen out of there as quick as they can, and the Jets want to win this game. I mean, I've never, I've never seen a team that wants to be seven and nine so badly. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh the Jets are gung, going gung-ho in this one. Uh no Vedvik this game, right? Vedvik's oh, not around. Osemele's not, no. not around. Yeah. Um and like I said, the Bills are gonna play it safe. They'll 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 give Josh Allen a couple of series, I guess. And uh the Jets should win this going away. Let them go out with a win, let them feel better about themselves. Uh, after this crazy, injury-plagued, mono-ravaged season.
0: All right, sir. Well, thanks for joining the podcast, and uh, I'll see you soon.
1: All right, right, cause thanks.
2: Take care. All right, Kaz, it's the end of the decade, and you know what that means. We're heading into 2020, a brand-new decade, a fresh start, but it means we got to take a look back at the last decade. It's been a lot of misery for the New York Jets, so this list is going to get a little bit ugly here at times. but Grim. Let's, yeah, it gets real grim at, at some points, especially when we get to punter. Um, but <laughs> we're going to take you e- inside each position of the Jets of the last decade and let you know who the best player was. So we start at quarterback, guys. And while it sounds crazy to say it, you know, he was with the Jets from 2010 through 2012, but they did go to back-to-back AFC championships. It is Mark Sanchez.
0: Yeah, I mean, really, Jake. The only other consideration I had here was Ryan Fitzpatrick, because Fitz probably had the best statistical season of the decade in 2015. But Sanchez, you know, got them the playoffs. 2009 uh, doesn't count for this exercise, but you know, he did win two playoff games at the beginning of 2010. Then won another two at the beginning of 2011. Hard to go against Sanchez with those playoff appearances, even though there was a lot of bad moments as well.
2: The last decade of running backs for the Jets. Who is your running back? It is Sean Green.
0: Yeah, and people might not remember this, but Sean Green ran for 1,000 yards in back-to-back seasons. And <laughs> not, I think Chris Ivory is the only guy who's done that since for the Jets. So to me it was Sean Green versus Chris Ivory, but when I actually went back and looked at the stats, you know, Sean Green had the 1,000-yard seasons uh, t- you know, two years in a row. So that put him over the top for me.
2: All right, let's move over to wide receiver now. And this guy made a little bit of news with us. If you, if you missed it out, yeah. check it out. The podcast, the last interview with Brandon Marshall, kind of went viral, broke the internet a little bit as he ripped Darrell Revis. So number one wide receiver is Brandon Marshall.
0: Yeah, and Brandon had a short run with the Jets, only two years. But that 2015 season was one of the best individual seasons you'll ever see. He set the record for catches in franchise history, and really he was the MVP of that team that went 10 and six, and you know probably the best team other than the 2010 team of this decade. Uh, so, you know, you have to give Brandon a nod there.
2: All right, we're giving you three wide receivers since it is such a diva ego position. We got to go with three of them. Number two on your list of best Jets of the decade at wide receiver is a guy who spent four seasons here, and he goes by the name of Santonio Holmes.
0: Yeah, and Santonio, really, 2010, it comes down to that. He, he really sparked that team in his first year with the Jets. He had a lot of great catches, memorable catches in that season, some comeback wins, obviously in the playoffs, had a huge catch in New England. Uh, So even though it went south quickly with Santonio, when you look at it, um, he has to be on this list. All
2: right, your third wide receiver on this list. He's got a beautiful wife who has a great voice. Eric Decker.
0: Yeah, and Decker was their big free agent acquisition in two thousand fourteen. He had a monster game at the end of two thousand fourteen in Miami, if you remember, at two hundred and twenty yards or so. He broke he set a record. And then he was, you know, the number two guy in two thousand fifteen with Brandon. And then he went over a thousand yards receiving. So, you know, Decker, even though you know, again, not a long run, but but very good for a short period of time.
2: It's slim pickings at tight end, and there's not really many options here, but there's one obvious one, and he's not related to Helen. It is Dustin Keller.
0: Yeah, Dustin, you know, was really good at the beginning of this decade and and had a lot of potential. Uh, Unfortunately, the Jets let him go, and then he got injured in Miami, but – you know, it feels like the Jets went about three years without a tight end. So uh Dustin Keller is the obvious choice here.
2: All right, we're moving to the offensive line of the big fellas. Left tackle's pretty easy, cause to Brookishaw Ferguson.
0: Yeah. I mean, that the, if there's there's a few positions on here where you're searching for someone, that, that ain't one of them. Um, you know, that that's not one of them for sure. Cause he's been he was as steady as it got for the Jets and he was just never missed a snap, never missed a practice. Uh, he was just so so great for them. Brick, um, if, if you had to pick an MVP from the offense of this decade, Brick would be in the conversation.
2: At left guard, he did not actually become your carpenter, but he did it on the football field blocking for them in his left guard James Carpenter.
0: Yeah, you know, this is a rough position. Uh, there there weren't a lot of choices here. Now, Alan Fanica was gone before 2010. They played Matt Slauson for a while. He was okay. Uh, Carpenter came in in '15 and had a run of four years, and he, you know, he played pretty well for a few years there.
2: Center, I mean, it, this is the easiest choice of them all. He's got the hell of a flow. He's got a beard of Zeus. It is Nick Mangold.
0: Yeah, just like Brick, you know, a guy that was reliable. And when Nick was at his best, he was the best center in football. And you know, he, um, again, like I said with Brick, if you were picking an MVP on offense, you'd, you'd come down between. Nick Mangold and the Shaw Ferguson.
2: Right guard, uh, somewhat of a tough choice, but he was here forever. I mean, this guy was here a decade, only had a couple of seasons at the start of the decade, but I think because of his longevity here, Kaz, you went with Brandon Moore.
0: Yeah, he was here for three years, 2010 to 12 in this decade, and Brandon was such a good player that people don't really appreciate how good he was. Uh, and, you know, when, if you talk to guys from that that great offensive line. They always talk about how great Brandon Moore was. And, you know, to me, this was at the the beginning of 2010 when they played that playoff game in San Diego. You remember fourth and one, and they handed it to Thomas Jones. Well, that was coming off of Brandon Moore's hip. They ran right behind Brandon because they, they knew they could get the yard behind Brandon.
2: Capping off the big fellows on the old line, right tackle goes to Brino Giacomini.
0: Yeah, Breno here, I there, there's not a good right tackle this decade. They, <laughs> it's been a tough position. You might say Damian Woody, but Damian was only here in 2010, and that was it. So for this decade, he, he, is, he wasn't really here long enough. Uh, and then they've gone through, you know, you want to go Wayne Hunter? You want, you want him, Jake? You want uh, Wayne Hunter on I the mean, team? So, geez. yeah. So, Breno was here for a while, so I just give the nod to Breno.
2: They are picking up the garbage. It is Thursday on my block, so so maybe we will. <laughs> a
0: cornerback, we go into the
2: secondary, and don't tell Brandon Marshall, I'll whisper this one to you, but remember, <laughs> he did have two stints, cause with the Jets, t- yeah. 2007 to 2012, left for two years, and then came back for two years. It is Darrell Rivas.
0: Yeah, and Rivas was very good in 2010, 2011. Those two years, he was, you know, all pro, uh, player he he was the best player on the team so he, even though the ending wasn't good you know you got to remember those early years and even 2015 ended poorly as Brandon pointed out on the podcast but it, he had some good moments in 2015 and then it, it went south the next year
2: at the other cornerback it is the guy who has enough kids that you probably forget their names at this point it is Antonio Cromartie
0: yeah, and crow uh you know teamed with revis there 2010 11 12. uh he was really good and then when revis got traded he was the number one cornerback in 2013 and he had a second stint too. came back in 15 wasn't as good but when crow you know early on when crow was at the top of his game uh they the jets defense was tough to throw on with him and revis
2: all right we're playing a 4-3 defense here so we're going to give you four defensive linemen and we start off with a man who who wasn't the wisest off the field, made some questionable yeah. decisions, but it is Sheldon Richardson.
0: Yeah, I went 4-3 here, Jake, because I can't think of four linebackers. <laughs> so, you know, at one point the strength of his team was the defensive line, and Sheldon, rookie of the year in 2013, made a Pro Bowl in 2014. When Sheldon was at, you know, playing motivated and at the top of his game, he was just dynamic to watch.
2: All right, the second defensive lineman. This one is pretty easy, cause he he had some good times here. wasn't the best ending, but it is Muhammad Wilkerson.
0: Yeah, and the ending kind of obscures what Muhammad did here. Uh, but Mo had two really good seasons with the Jets, one Pro Bowl season, and then broke his leg at the you know that famous 2015 Buffalo game. Broke his leg in that game. Was never quite the same after that, or after they paid him. Uh, but Wilkerson had a, a really good run here.
2: Continuing on the defensive line, it's something that Rex Ryan. Uh, was a big fan of during HBO's Hard Knocks, it is Damon Snacks, Harrison.
0: Yeah, Snacks, you know, great story, undrafted free agent at a William Penn College. He really didn't know who he was when he came into the Jets in 2012 and then developed into a really, really great player uh, and then went on to play for the Giants and the Lions now, but Snacks uh, had some really good times with the Jets.
2: Capping off the defensive line, it is a guy who is now in the New York Giants that the Jets just traded you know, a little bit of a rough stretch over the years, but he did make one Pro Bowl. It is Leonard Williams.
0: Yeah, and Leonard, you know, for all the stuff, he doesn't get sacks. Leonard is very good against the run. Um, you know, I'm concentrating on stopping the run with this team, Jake. I'll, I'll leave the passing to Revis and Cromartie. My defensive line's about stopping the run, uh, and and Leonard was very good at that and had a Pro Bowl season, like you mentioned, in 2016.
2: All right, let's move to linebackers in this 4-3 defense. This one's easy, cause The guy was here for about a decade, 2007 to 2016, before doing a, a typical move. And going to the Patriots and Bill Belichick, and he is now retired. It is David Harris.
0: Yeah, and Harris, another guy like DeBrickashaw Ferguson, Nick Mangold, steady guy, just was you know a constant in the Jets' defense for a long time. Um, wasn't the flashiest player, but you could always rely on him.
2: Continuing at linebackers. Calvin Pace was here 2008 to 2015.
0: Yeah, and Calvin, you know, they, they don't have a lot of guys who who make got a lot of sacks. They they haven't had a good edge rusher, but Calvin, you know, he he had some years where he had a lot of he had some good number of sacks and uh, he was just another edge setter uh constant in this defense for a long time and uh you know, a guy I always enjoyed talking to in the locker room.
2: I'll see myself after making this reference, but I can't wait to tell you the last linebacker which is Bart Scott.
0: Yeah, before he became a radio star, Bart was a linebacker, kids. And, you know, Bart was pretty good at the beginning of the decade. Uh, Another one, his ending wasn't great his last year, but 2010-2011, Bart Scott was a a big piece of the Jets' defense.
2: And he did talk about our Brandon Marshall interview on WFN, so thank you for that part. We move to safety, free safety, Jim Leonard.
0: This is another position I had a hard time. You know, there's not a lot of good choices here. Maybe you could go uh, Leron Landry, who made a Pro Bowl in 2012, but he was only here for a year. Uh, Jimmy Leonard was, you know, Rex Ryan's coach on the field in, in his defense, and you saw the effect that he had when he got hurt before that Patriots game in 2010, and they lost 45-3, to you know, because the defense didn't know what to do without Jimmy Leonard out there. So he's also an underrated punt returner. It was a very steady punt returner for them. So now the Wisconsin defensive coordinator, Jim Leonard.
2: And the last one at, at strong safety is pretty easy. It's the guy who's leading the defense now, the guy who's very outspoken, who we'll see where he ends up if he does stay or if he goes this offseason. It is Jamal Adams.
0: Yeah, I, our only current player right on the team, I think. And Jamal, um, you know, is the heart of this defense right now. You've seen what he can do. Made a second Pro Bowl this season. I think he could be All Pro this year as well. So uh, that was a no-brainer for me.
2: All right, we go to we got to show the special teams a little bit of love. We're not going to go crazy and go with you know long snapper and special teams hero and kick returner, but we will give the kickers some love. It's a guy who a lot of people didn't realize guys, is still in
0: the league and kicking yeah. for the Patriots now. It's Nick Folk, who was here for a while. I think we should give long snapper love, uh, Jake. I, Tanner Purdom would be my long snapper. But Nick Folk, Nick Folk, uh, you know, was had a lot of big kicks for the Jets through the years. And Rex Ryan always had the same line when Folk would hit a game winner. He'd come in and he goes, you guys know the headline, Folk hero. So Folk hero gets the nod. All right, last
2: but not least, and this one was tough because, listen, the Jets have had a lot of punting over, over these miserable years. Uh, yeah. But punter, we go with Lachlan Edwards.
0: I'm going for it on fourth down, Jake. I'm not punting. That's my decision.
2: (laughs) Riverboat Ron, a.k.a. Brian Castell. That is the decade of the best Jets at each position.
0: It's that time of the show where our producer, Jake Brown, dives into the betting lines one final time to cap off the regular season. Here's Brown's best bets for Week 17.
2: All right, all right, all right. It is time for the season finale of Brown's Best Beds for Week 17. We're going to start with my three-team parlay. If you're new to the program, better late than never. But what we do is you inject parlays straight into my veins, and you start with a $25 parlay to cash you $150. But if you have a lot of Christmas money stocked up, make it $50 to cash out 300 smackaroos. I'm going to start with the over-unders. You start with over 45 And Titans at Texans. Both these teams score at will. This is going to be a shootout combined. They average 49, but I think there's going to be a lot of scoring. There's no weather implications in this game in Houston. When the Titans are playing for a playoff spot, the Texans are playing for a three-seed. So I think this game hits the over easily. If you want to be safe, buy the half point. So you do over 44 and a half. The second over-under is Jets Bills. Listen, if you've listened to the show, you know that I love overs when they're in the 30s because sometimes these hit at halftime. I know these teams aren't big time scoring teams, the Jets and Bills. They combined average 37. This is going to be close, but I do think with a lot of backups playing, I think there's going to be backup defensive players that are going to get torn up I think the Jets are going to take advantage of that, actually. So I do think the over 36 hits here by the half point if you want to be safe and go over 35 and a half. That is one of the lowest numbers you will get all season, and I'll take it. All right, the final part of my three-team parlay, the Dolphins plus 16 in Foxborough. Listen, I know it's crazy. The Dolphins, they're going to get crushed. They've been playing pretty tight in a lot of their games this season, and I think the Patriots are looking ahead. There may be a chance that Brady and the guys rest in the second half if they do get a big lead, which means I think the Dolphins are going to get a backdoor cover in the second half of this game. 16 is a large number. That's over two touchdowns, and the Patriots haven't been blowing teams out all year. These games have been fairly close, so I do think the Dolphins cover plus 16. 16. All right, now it's time for my three best bets against the spread, and I'm going with three underdogs this week, three teams that I don't think should be underdogs, and I'm going to start in beast mode land, man. Marshawn Lynch is back with the Seattle Seahawks. This game is in Seattle against the 49ers, and the Seahawks are somehow three-and-a-half-point favorites. Listen, I know they got a ton of injuries, and they're dealing with a lot, but this is a monster game. A lot of motivation in front of their home crowd. And if they don't win it, I don't see them losing by more than a field goal. Maybe a Robbie goal field goal seals it, but I do think the Seahawks should cover plus three and a half in a battle for the division. Number two, the Raiders are in a spot where they need to win to get in, and then they need some help. And the good thing for them is that the other teams that they need to lose are playing at the same time. The NFL set it up where they're not playing before, where they know their fate before the game even starts. They won't know their fate during the game, which means they're playing the hard out. They're playing for a playoff spot, and they're three-and-a-half-point underdogs in Denver against the Broncos' team that's playing for nothing. So I'd like the Raiders to definitely cover three-and-a-half. They'll probably win the game, too, but I think Vegas is giving them a little disrespect here, making them three-and-a-half-point underdogs against a team that is six-and-nine in the Broncos. All right, my last best bet against the spread, it's another team that continues to get no respect on their name, and it is the Houston Texans they are home against the Titans and somehow some way I do not get it they are three and a half point underdogs at home against the Titans I think the Texans cover and listen Watson at some point might rest but they are playing for a three seed and a chance to play a six seed and I think that's big I think you want to play the team that's the six seed whether it's the Titans the Steelers, or the Raiders, you would much rather play one of those teams, especially the Steelers and Duck Hodges, over playing the Buffalo Bills. The Bills are much more dangerous than whoever that six seed is. So if I'm the Texans, I'm playing my heart and soul out in this game, and I think they cover three and a half. They don't win. They're not losing by more than a field goal. And that's a wrap for Browns Best Bets for Week 17, for the regular season, and for 2019, and for the decade. So here's what I want you to do with your cash winnings. I want you to ring in the new year with the biggest bottle of champagne you can find. I'm talking a three-figure, overly expensive bottle. And share it with your loved ones to ring in the new year. Happy new year, folks. We'll see you in 2020, degenerates.
0: That will do it for this episode of Gangs All Here, our New York Jets football podcast with the New York Post. Thanks to our producer, Jake Brown, for always making it happen. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your preferred podcast platforms for the best Jets content. You can find more Jets news by signing up for our daily New York Post sports newsletter and by visiting nypost.com. We'll be back Monday to recap the Jets season finale in Buffalo. See you next week.